Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. Is the government lying about inflation? The Big Mac says yes. One of the more spirited debates these past two years has been government statistics on inflation. The Bureau of Labor Statistics has one set of official numbers, but people posting screenshots of their grocery bills or health insurance say it is a lot higher. So who's telling the truth? Are regime statisticians paid shills or are the people missing the forest for the trees? Fortunately, we have a neutral referee in the form of the humble Big Mac. Believe it or not, the Big Mac is a long-standing financial metric used above all to estimate whether foreign currencies are fairly priced. The Economist magazine regularly adjusts economies and currencies by normalizing the local price of a Big Mac. The reason is that a Big Mac involves a wide variety of inputs, food, electricity, trucks, rent, wages, which make it a bite-sized summary of true inflation. Now, what's fun is that the Big Mac never lies. McDonald's posts the prices, they're widely reported, they're never adjusted by government statisticians, so last year, Axios did that. They took the Big Mac numbers, tallying them from the year 2000 to 2022. Amazingly, it turns out that the Big Mac actually did rise in inflation-adjusted terms and a lot. In raw numbers, over those 22 years, the Big Mac went up more than 40% after adjusting for inflation. Why is that amazing? Because the Big Mac is inflation. At least that's what trillion-dollar financial markets think. How is that possible? The simple answer is they lie. 40% over 22 years comes to about 1.6% per year. Adding that to official inflation of 2.4% implies the true inflation number since 2000 was close to 4% per year, almost twice the official number. Now, this is a very big deal because GDP and wages, which are the way that we measure if we're actually getting richer, are also indexed to inflation. To give a sense, the official numbers say regular non-supervisory wages went up 3.1% between 2000 and 2022. In official inflation of 2.4% knocked that down to 0.7. So slow, but at least it's not shrinking. But if, in fact, inflation was 4%, it means wages have actually been shrinking for the past 22 years and probably a lot longer. So going back to 2023 now, in March of this year, the New York Post said a Big Mac cost $5.15, which was 22% more than pre-pandemic, while official inflation was just 16%. So that means true inflation was not the 5% per year they claim, it was closer to 7 almost a third higher. Also implying that official wage numbers, household incomes, and wealth are all a lot worse than even the official numbers report. So what's next? What's next is they will keep lying. Government statisticians care a lot more about the budget that they'll get from Joe Biden than what the American people need. In the meantime, whether it's the grocery store, health insurance, or planning for your retirement, believe what you see, not what they say. The Bureau of Economic Analysis just released a huge revision to the past three years of economic data, and it is ugly. 
In short, it's exactly what you'd expect. Higher inflation, weaker growth, lower consumer spending, and a bigger share of GDP faked by government spending. Now, in theory, government statistics are periodically revised for noise, a cold winter, a holiday falling on a Sunday. In reality, however, the adjustments have become so lopsided that either government statisticians have gotten very bad at their job or the original numbers are lies. After all, the media reports the original statistics breathlessly, and of course, they ignore the revisions three years later, especially if those revisions are clustered dozens at a time and then pumped out late week, which is exactly what happened here. Now, the BEA knew their data was wrong. I mentioned in a video the epic divergence between two standard tallies of the economy, the famous GDP and the GDI. In theory, they are the same what's bought versus what's sold. In fact, as recently as 2021, they did match with just a 0.02% divergence. Since then, things went weird. GDI remained flat. In fact, it fell, adjusting for population, while GDP allegedly jumped almost 2%. Now, historically, GDP tends to catch down to GDI. And in fact, it was worse because they revised both consumer spending and inflation, meaning we are poorer than we thought, and they're confessing they undercounted prices. In raw numbers, BEA revised consumer spending down for five of the six past quarters. The revision for the latest quarter was striking, going from 1.7% to 0.8%, which is a nine sigma miss. It would occur by chance with roughly one in one quintillion odds. So that's about four billion times more likely than you winning the Powerball. Beyond their astronomy scale miss, they also reported that government consumption has actually grown faster than personal consumption for the past year, meaning the government Borg is taking over the economy. That progressively makes GDP more a measure of government waste than national prosperity. Meanwhile, the BEA's inflation revisions hiked prices in 7 out of 10 of Biden's quarters and revised just one down. That's a pretty impressive miss ratio for professional statisticians, about 4 to 1, and it took peak inflation up another notch. They revised savings numbers, which knocked off about $1.1 we thought we had. And finally, the BEA revised GDP itself, going way back to 2020. It turns out that long after the fact and long after the election, the BEA now says that Trump's growth was stronger than they said and Biden's growth was weaker, again with a 4 to 1 ratio in favor of Biden. So that means the contraction last year was actually down 2%, which is a quarter worse than thought. So what is next? What's next is the economy is a lot weaker than they say, but there's a lot more to revise. At some point, our government statistics start to look like China, where the numbers are taken as propaganda and people rely on shadow indicators like grocery bills or tossed resumes. Reality, alas, does not care what spins paid government statisticians are selling this week. A word from our sponsors. If you follow Bitcoin, you probably know that the halving is just six months away, meaning we're about to get a big drop in the supply of new Bitcoin. We've seen that this can send Bitcoin's price up, so selling Bitcoin now to cover expenses could end up costing you. Credit card rates recently hit 24%, but borrowing against your Bitcoin with Unchained can save you a lot. 
you hold your keys and you can verify that your Bitcoin is secure anytime. Don't be forced to sell the bottom and miss out. For more info, go to Unchained.com and use promo code PETER to get $50 off concierge onboarding. A new report from Bank of America's in-house maverick Michael Hartnett is sounding the alarm for investors. Hartnett thinks the Fed and its global central bank lackeys are succeeding at crushing the world economy. And he says history warns the death cross is the last Fed hike, which looks increasingly imminent with the world economy now turning over. First up, how we got here. A total of 276 worldwide rate hikes have done a number on the real economy. I recently mentioned how recession has started or close to it in essentially the entire world. Then Hartnett goes back to the 1970s to ask what happened last time. He concludes the magic moment for investors is the very last rate hike. At that point, batten down the hatches because it could be a big one, especially considering that we are coming off 5,000-year lows in interest rates, not a joke, itself a product of no less than 1,343 rate cuts globally since 2008 and $23 trillion of new central bank printing. By the way, Hartnett thinks the break could start in Japan, given they've been draining money so hard it could cascade into a global liquidity event. So why is the last rate hike so bad? Because in contrast to regime fairy tales about wise and omniscient central banks guiding the ship of economy through rough waters, it turns out that the central banks are the rough waters. They are the ones who knock. Because manipulating interest rates sets off an apparently endless series of boom-bust cycles that destroy millions of lives and trillions of wealth every go-round. And the last hike comes in because the Fed's biggest fear during a boom is inflation. Makes voters angry, which makes Congress angry. So they'll only cut during an inflation if they think the economy is headed for a cliff. Because that also makes voters angry since they have trouble eating. So the inflection is essentially the Fed panicking because of impending recession. Now, so far that hasn't happened because the Fed remains more scared of inflation, partly because the GDP numbers have been holding up thanks to government deficits and government statisticians, and partly because unemployment rates, official unemployment rates, are fortified by millions of people who exited the workforce altogether. Because you only show up as officially unemployed if you are actually looking for work. On the other hand, if you're relaxing on the couch with the Xbox or living under a bridge, you don't count. So the numbers are, to a certain degree, fake. Now, Jerome Powell actually knows that his numbers are wrong. He recently waxed lyrical about navigating by stars on cloudy nights. But so long as media plays along and voters buy it, it keeps Congress on snooze and Jerome can ignore the recession. So what's next? What's next is continuing deterioration going by centuries of central bank manipulation of interest rates. Eventually, the jobless numbers start to come up and scare the Fed, and then they start cutting rates, trading some inflation for fewer headlines about food kitchens, trading a rook for a pawn, and praying the media covers for them. Meanwhile, back in the real world, we are lining up for a hit, potentially on the scale of the near-death 2008 crisis, which was itself the worst recession since the Great Depression. Toss in today's 1970s-style stagflation, and those cloudy, starred, rough waters could drown millions. A few days ago, CNBC's Rick Santelli predicted the interest rates on the 10-year bond 
could conceivably jump to 14%, up from today's already ruinous 5%. If that happens, we could see something a lot bigger than the 2008 crisis. Now, if you don't know Rick Santelli, he's one of the strongest voices on CNBC. He's probably most famous for an epic 2009 rant, the rant heard around the world, tearing a new one in the corrupt and incompetent federal government that was busy bailing out everybody on their Rolodex, much like today, in fact. That rant met with spontaneous applause on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and was credited with launching the Tea Party, which begat Donald Trump. Back to the other night, Rick said he thinks rates are going a lot higher because federal spending is out of control. To the point, it is only a matter of time till the bond vigilantes ride again, meaning private bond investors who get nervous about inflation or the government's enthusiasm about repaying their debts. This makes the vigilantes demand higher rates to buy Washington's confetti. Note, Rick is not saying 13% or 14% is guaranteed. He's not even saying it's likely. And he's talking the next seven years, not next Tuesday. But he thinks if nothing changes in Washington, that is the path we are on. Now, the 10-year bond matters because not only are there 6 trillion of them, the 10-year is taken as a benchmark for the cost of capital across the entire business cycle. This is because 10 years covers every stage of a typical business cycle, the boom, the bust, the in-between. If you're in a boom, that means it measures all the way to the next boom, If you're in a bust, all the way to the next bust. That makes the 10-year a perfect proxy for generalized cost of capital, which then feeds into other rates from corporate borrowing to mortgages to credit cards. So what happens if rates on the 10-year do go to double digit? Well, the last time that happened was the late 1970s, when they almost kissed 16% on the 10-year and stayed in double digits for about six years. It was a fairly rough stretch. Mortgages went past 18%. Unemployment almost hit 11% as companies faced extortionate costs of borrowing. And suddenly gold went up sixfold during that period. Silver went up sevenfold. We can only imagine what Bitcoin might do. So what's next? What's next is double digit on the 10-year is still a worst case scenario in the near term. The key question at this point is, are we in store for another 2008, meaning a banking crisis paired with a deep recession, or are we in the stagflationary 1970s once again? Or dare we dream, has Washington managed to deliver both a 2008 banking crisis and a 1970s stagflation? A dystopian hat trick they have not managed since FDR pulled it off in the 1930s. If so, everything is on the table. This podcast is supported by our sponsor, MoneyMetals.com, the most trusted bullion dealer and depository in the United States. Known for their competitive pricing, customer service, and fast delivery of physical gold and silver, as well as their educational content and strong advocacy for sound money policies. They've set the industry standard for selling, buying, and storing precious metals. If you're looking to help protect yourself, I hope you'll give them a try. Go to moneymetals.com to learn more and use coupon code PETER to get $10 off your first purchase of gold or silver. More pain is coming for the American economy and our wayward banks as yet another Fed official warns that more rate hikes are coming. 
in the wake of inflation that has been re-accelerating for two months straight with more to come. Speaking at a conference in Alberta, the least crazy part of Canada, Fed board member Michelle Bauman warned, quote, inflation continues to be too high, so she expects more rate hikes to, quote, return inflation to our 2% goal in a timely way. Note how transitory got demoted to timely, perhaps with more demotions to come. Other Fed officials have recently made similar noises, including Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester and John Williams of the New York Fed, which is the big one. The background here is that inflation had been stuck for two and a half years, core inflation anyway, which is the one the Fed cares about, but that has now shifted to inflation actually speeding up again, which is not supposed to be happening with the highest interest rates in 22 years and after the most savage rate hikes in roughly 50 years. So why is it rising? Because in those two and a half years, the Fed has made zero progress on the actual driver of inflation, which is out-of-control federal spending. In fact, spending has gotten a lot worse, with the CBO now projecting $2 trillion deficits through 2050. Instead, the central banks of the world have been coasting on freebies as supply chains unstuck and looming global recession itself hit energy prices. Now that energy is taking back the freebie and going up again, as Warren Buffett puts it, the tide went out and we see who is swimming without a suit. So backing up, inflation started jumping in 2021 because of obscene levels of federal spending to buy lockdowns. At one point, almost one in three dollars had fresh ink. Then as lockdowns eased and the world digested Mr. Putin's war, prices started coming back down. But central bankers around the world had already hiked rates so far so fast that global recession was now incoming. Recession always hits energy prices hard, which are a big part of the CPI. In the 2008 crisis, for example, oil went from $196 to just $61 in six months. In the 2020 lockdowns, oil hit $22. For a minute, it actually had a negative price. That cheap oil, alas, was very transitory because Joe Biden and his European minions are now wiping out domestic energy production in favor of unicorn farts, which means supply is evaporating. That gives OPEC an opening to cut its own production since they don't have to worry about American shale producers drinking their milkshakes. So at this point, the energy freebie is going away, even reversing given the West's suicidal energy policies and the recent events in the Middle East, leaving the government spending, which was never fixed. So what's next? What's next is more hikes to crush the real economy so central bankers can avoid uncomfortable conversations about government deficits or the net zero utopia that aims to return us to the medieval era. I recently mentioned that we are seeing warnings that bonds could go a lot higher, driven by ongoing inflation and eye-watering deficits. That together makes investors begin to wonder if Uncle Sam actually intends to pay its debts. Given that $33 trillion in debt, any jump in bonds could be the spark that takes us over the edge. Unfortunately, going by the past couple decades, they will not fix any of it until events force them to. Aside from stealing your life savings and launching depressions, one of the nastier features of paper money is what it does to governments. In short, it transforms them from parasite into predator. This is because the traditional relationship was that government wanted us to be rich so it could get lots of taxes. But what if the government doesn't need taxes? What if it has a money printer instead? One that can apparently print trillions per year as the Fed did during COVID. 
Well, at that point, the government doesn't actually need us to be prosperous. It feasts whether or not we starve. It goes from the natural symbiosis of a parasite to potentially a very nasty predator. We saw this in living color during the pandemic lockdowns. So just imagine in early COVID, some naive bureaucrat who rushed in with a brilliant idea. We shall lock down half the economy, which will cut GDP by half, so it will cut taxes by half. But don't worry, we'll just fire the government workers. That bureaucrat would have a very short career. Instead, of course, they did have an in-house money printer, the Fed, who pumped out the $6 trillion it took to bribe voters into lockdowns and spend whatever Washington's diseased minds could come up with. Aside from the liberties they took with those trillions, we're now dealing with the aftermath. The inflation, the millions out of the labor force, the trillions of debt, kids who can't read, half of 20-something Americans now stuck living with their parents, all because they had a money printer. In fact, this is not a new problem. In this week's newsletter, I walk through the experience of Song Dynasty China, which famously invented paper money, specifically the woodblock technique that enables mass printing. The Song are otherwise famous for using the resulting inflation to turn one of history's most amazing golden ages into a gutted carcass, the Mongol Khan's road to burn half the world. So what happened? In short, the Song government quickly discovered it could use block printing to counterfeit money, and it turned from taxes to inflation. This broke the traditional Confucian model of symbiosis between government revenue and public prosperity. As the economy failed, the Song flooded free money to peasants, welfare, and as today, it started wars to distract and excuse their failures, and to ship young men off to die. It lost those wars as previously proud Chinese fled the dying economy to join the invaders. It was, in a word, national suicide. And it only stopped when the victorious Mongols reinstated silver money in the new Yuan dynasty. So back to the present, what's next? What's next is we've learned nothing from a thousand years of failed paper money. Governments are using paper to turn themselves into burdens on their people rather than the benevolent helpers they were supposed to be. Every government should fundamentally want the same things its people want. Prosperity, low crime, social harmony, peace. Instead, they are becoming active agents of disruption, seemingly uninterested whether we succeed or fail, because after all, they feast either way. At this point, our leaders are accelerating down the road from benign parasite to vicious predator, with no end in sight. Read the full article on the Song Dynasty at Prof. St. Ange. Are the American people getting poorer? Have our ruling clowns finally killed the golden goose that for 200 years made each American generation richer than our parents? In recent videos, I've mentioned the depressing state for young people entering the real world. Low wages, obscene housing costs, eye-watering prices for everything from eating out to health insurance. To the point that many 20-somethings look with envy upon boomers when it used to be the old marveling at all the opportunities of the young. I also mentioned how real-world inflation measures agree, saying governments have been lying about inflation and we may be much poorer than we think. Recently, a study came out saying almost half of young Americans, that's age 18 to 29, are now living with their parents, almost all for financial reasons. Many were driven there during lockdowns and now remain locked in by low wages and soaring prices. 
As Bloomberg puts it, the American dream is becoming, quote, the American illusion for the young. The problem isn't just kids in the basement. We've got a concerning array of indicators going the wrong way fast. Four big ones include house size, cars, food, and life expectancy. The average American house went from just over 1,000 square feet in 1900, divide by 10 if you speak meters. By 1973, it was almost 1,700 square feet, then almost 1,900 square feet by the 1990s, and nearly 2,700 square feet by 2015. And then it broke, falling rapidly so that seven years later, it's down to just 2,200 for the average new home, which is almost a fifth smaller. Next up is cars. The IHS reports that the average age of an American car has never been higher, hitting a 12-and-a-half-year average age, which is a new record. Meanwhile, new car sales are the lowest in over a decade. Keep in mind there were 20 million fewer Americans 10 years ago. Now, in the old days, old cars were sent to Africa to squeeze out a few more years. Today, we keep them. Next is food. As societies decline, one by one, people turn to cheaper replacements. First, they replace beef with chicken, then from chicken to beans, and the bugs are a new thing. In fact, the West is well along that process. In America, cheap chicken has been crowding out pork and beef, while meat consumption is falling outright across Europe. So Germany just hit a 34-year low in meat consumption. The media will cheer it on, celebrating every involuntary vegan to get those carbon footprints down, perhaps browbeating the holdout meat eaters to enjoy some bugs. They are, after all, cheap. Finally is life expectancy. In the U.S., this peaked in 2015, halting literally centuries of rising lifespans ever since the beginning of the Republic. And lifespans are notably a standard measure of economic development. Alas, even outside COVID, we are looking at an eight-year trend now in falling life expectancy. Part of it is fentanyl and addiction, which are both proxies for homelessness, and part of it is diet, cheap processed carbs instead of pricey meat. Put it all together, and the facts on the ground start to paint a picture that, yes, they broke it, that after 200 years of prosperity, we are going backwards. So what's next? Unfortunately, more of the same. The drivers of America's poverty, which are government crushing the productive economy while subsidizing irresponsibility, have metastasized. They now have a literal army of activists and lobbyists who keep them going. Indeed, they keep them growing. In theory, it stops because the Uniparty needs our taxes. In reality, they just print it. So they feast and we eat the bugs. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox and visit petersanange.com for all the videos, archives, and fresh articles about economics and freedom. Okay, we'll be watching. See you next time.